Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Melena Rice. I'm a fourth-year PhD student in the Yale Astronomy Department, where I study the dynamics of planetary systems. I'm Will Saunders. I'm a third-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the atmospheres of planets in our solar system. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm a third-year graduate student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where I study supernovae and the galaxies they come from. And I also have a cold, so bear with me here. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to episode 37, How to Date a Star. And unfortunately, we are not talking about how to make Taylor Swift your girlfriend. Darn it's it. an even <laughs> more exciting kind of dating and maybe an even more exciting kind of star, arguably. Although it's hard to, I don't know. <laughs> that was tough. <laughs> There'll be a follow-up episode. <laughs> <laughs> So in this episode, we'll be talking about how we determine a surprisingly elusive property of astrophysical objects, and stars in particular, that is, ages. And when you think about it, maybe it's not actually that surprising that it's not so easy to figure out how old stars are. They don't get wrinkly, they don't start yelling at you to get off their lawn, there's not even a little bit of back pain. As far as we know. <laughs> as far as we know. <laughs> They're literally just massive self-gravitating balls of gas. <laughs> so how do we actually figure out how old they are from many light years away? Well, if we want to determine stellar ages, we must see some kind of difference between the younger and the older stars. They can't look exactly the same. So, Will and Alex, could one of you tell us how stars change over time? Yeah, I'll jump in here. So, we should clarify what we mean in this episode by dating stars. What we mean is main sequence stars, stars in the middle of their lives. Because if they're forming, it's pretty easy to see they're not quite stars yet. And if they're dead, it's pretty easy to see they're dead. So, <laughs> it turns out the real tricky part is, are they like young adults or like nearing retirement age? <laughs> and there are some changes that happen in the core of the star during this time because they start off with all hydrogen, but then they convert it gradually to helium. So there are chemical changes deep in the core that will make the star slightly hotter and slightly more luminous over time. But we can't see that really well. It's, it's extremely hard to be able to calibrate because there are a lot of more difficult factors. So the truth is, there are very few indicators of how long a star has been on the main sequence, how old it is. Okay, so if it's tough, as you're saying, yeah. and there aren't a lot of indicators, what are the standard methods that are actually used to try to figure out how old they are? Right, so the most straightforward method is to look at the photometry of the star. That is, its color and how bright it is. In this sense, it's doing what I suggested before, which is seeing how hot and how luminous it is and how that might mm -hmm. have changed. So you can make a Hertzsprung-Russell and HR diagram and plot this out. And this works pretty okay if you have a cluster of stars that, say, formed around the same time. Now you know there's sort of a calibration. You calibrate them against each other. But just for individual stars in the galaxy, it's really, really hard. And there are even other factors in the observations, like the interstellar medium between us and the star causes things to look slightly redder. 
And unless you know that really accurately, you're going to measure a false color of the star. And again, as Will mentioned, for 90% of a star's life, it looks almost exactly the same. Yeah. It's on the main sequence, it's stable, and so where it is in that lifetime on the main sequence is very, very hard to determine for an individual star. The best we could do is get an upper limit based on the photometry because we know it hasn't moved from the main sequence to some other part of the HR diagram where it's going to be more unstable. Okay. Exactly right. That makes perfect sense. If it has deviated from the main sequence, then we certainly know. So if it's not quite deviated, we know it can't be a certain age. But beyond that, it's just an upper limit, right? It's not really a, a true value. A second way to determine the age of a main sequence star is asteroseismology which I'm told is the most accurate way to measure <laughs> a star's age. And we, we have talked about asteroseismology in the past. Briefly, it's the study of how stars oscillate. That's internal oscillations. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I think we've talked about astroseismology, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the asteroseismologists in my department would be disappointed with me if I pronounced it any other way. <laughs> Another way to measure the age of a star is gyrochronology, not gerontology, it's not gynecology, it's not geochromatography, no, it's gyrochronology. What an intro. <laughs> you really sold it to me. This is like cosmetology versus cosmology. <laughs> Both beautiful sciences. This is the topic of Alex's bite, so I will leave it to him to explain what gyrochronology is. Yeah, we'll jump into it in a little bit. Mm -hmm. Then the last way that you can measure the age of a star is the topic of my bite, which is the abundances of individual elements. So not hydrogen, helium, usually it's lithium or yttrium or some other weird ones that can actually give you some decent data if you know how to look. Huh. I feel like I haven't really heard much about that one, so I'm interested to hear more, but mm. stay tuned for later in the mm -hmm. episode. <laughs> you bet. So are some of these methods more widely used than others then? Like are some of them, you see most of the ages come from just one of them? Or are they kind of evenly split? And is there a reason that one of them is easier to do than the other? Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, pulling an upper limit from the HR diagram is very common just because it's so easy. I mean, color and brightness of a star, those things are direct observables. And so they're quick to get. Other methods like the pulsations from astroseismology are derived and I'd imagine are much harder measurements to take, but potentially, as you mentioned, could yield a more accurate estimate of the ages. But I think for the general population of astronomers, first thing you would do to get an age is look at the HR diagram. Right. I think I've usually seen that in the literature called isochrone fitting. So if you see That's right. mm -hmm. if you see that yes. name, then it, it's probably just saying they like looked at the HR diagram and where the star is and then figured out how old it seems to be based on that. Iso meaning the same and chrone chronology meaning time or age, right? Mm -hmm. So this is the track that you would expect an object to trace on the HR diagram. And if you fit it to the brightness and color of an object, then you can estimate how old you think it might be. Right. Not to be confused with ice cream cone, ice, which is cold, cream, which is milk, and cone, which is delicious. You and the hominins. Yeah, some excellent puns going on today. Oh my gosh. Back to our roots. We'll see if we ever make it through this episode. So, okay. 
We've learned a little bit about some of the methods that are used to figure out how old stars are, but why do we actually care? What are the applications of determining those precise stellar ages? Well, one of the biggest endeavors in transient science is in connecting the phenomena that we observe, like supernovae, different explosions, to the properties of the objects that we think might have created them. Hmm. So, for example, if we see a supernova in a cluster of stars and we find out using one of these methods that all the stars are around a billion years old, this suggests that the star that exploded was around that age as well. And that can tell us something about what it was like before it exploded and potentially some of the reasons for why it blew up. Okay, so it provides context for other questions, but also for like how specific stars evolve, which is, I think, just sort of an important thing to understand in general. Exactly. A useful tool if you have the age of stars and you can measure their kinematics or how they move is you can trace them back to where they were born, which is very useful for star formation. Yeah, that was the Nobel Prize that Andrea Ghez got recently, right? Was looking at the movement of stars in the galaxy. Yeah, that's true. Which I guess isn't the same thing as figuring out where they were born necessarily, but <laughs> similar idea. <laughs> yeah. Was used to infer the existence of the black hole at the center of the galaxy, right? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess you would probably learn a fair bit of interesting information based on the ages of those stars too, which I'm sure probably very well constrained given how famous that study sure. is. Sure. <laughs> All right, so we've we've talked a little bit about what you can learn about stars from calibrating the ages of stars, but can you learn about other objects in space as well? Yeah, for sure. Stars are a really good connection point, I think, between a lot of different areas of astrophysics. So stars form when cold gas clumps and collapses and by learning where young stars are in a galaxy you can study the dynamics of the material within that galaxy so how much gas it might have and where it might be flowing to and away from stars have also been used to place a limit on the age of the entire universe although this is collections of stars uh, in globular clusters not individual stars is dating the universe generally something that's done with stars? Or do we figure out ages with things besides stars? <laughs> yeah, I know there are different methods for it now. So for example, the Hubble constant, one of the reasons right. why people are trying to get the Erebus really small on that is because that provides an estimate for the age of the universe. But mm -hmm. originally, globular clusters were one of the oldest, if not the oldest objects that we knew of in the universe and actually did set that furthest limit that we had. Right. And it makes sense. We get so much information from photons, and stars are generally the things that provide the photons. So Exactly. Right. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you both for this great intro. Hopefully this has provided a good primer to now go into some detailed stellar age studies. So Alex, could you start us off with your astrobite? I can definitely do that. My astrobite is called, Can a Planet Change the Measured Age of Its Parent Star? Ooh. It was written by Oliver Hall and based on a paper by Galay and Delorme from 2019. Now, I think Melana's chuckling because that name spoils exactly <laughs> what their hypothesis is, but let's, <laughs> let's build up to that point. Also, planets are always what I want to hear about, yeah. so I'm Plan excited. <laughs> the word planet just makes you giggle. <laughs> So this research, as Will alluded to earlier, focuses on gyrochronology, which is the study of stellar dating by the rate of rotation of stars. Rotating main sequence stars, it's been found, 
slow down over time because they lose their angular momentum through stellar winds. So the typical analogy that you hear of is an ice skater pulling his or her arms in closer to spin faster, moving them outward to move more slowly. This is like a star continually moving its arms further and further outward as it gets older. So the period continues to slow down. And luckily, main sequence stars spin down at a very predictable rate that can be determined by their color. So if you measure both the color and the current rotation rate of a star, you can estimate how old it is. So main sequence stars come in lots of different masses, right? So that means that this angular momentum change would be very different. You would probably have very different spin rates, I would think, for different types of stars. Is that something that's really well modeled? Yeah, really great question. So actually, color is one of the ways that we indirectly infer the mass of the star because we can't directly measure it. But you also bring up a really good question in that stars form in lots of different ways, and when they first form, they might have completely different periods. Now, the thing that's crazy, this is something that really blew my mind, is that because rotation is so tightly linked to mass and age, if multiple stars share these properties, they'll very quickly converge to the same rotation rate evolution track, even if they start out with very different periods. Why is that? Why would they all converge? Is there like an intuitive reason for that? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, I don't have a good answer for it. But I know that it's something to do with the correlation with mass that I don't know, I would guess that there's some like regularization that goes on onto like some standard spin rate. Mm -hmm. I guess the mass loss rate by a wind is dependent only on the mass and the luminosity, of course, because luminosity is dependent on the mass. And color is dependent on the mass. Mass is really the only property that matters in a star's mm-hmm. life, right? So, it, well, I guess mass, when it formed, because of what chemicals it formed from. But if the masses are the same, then, you know, it'll follow the same evolutionary track and spin down into a similar rate. Makes sense. I'm also curious, does this specifically focus on single stars? Because if they're like binaries or multiple stars, I would think that that would probably really dramatically change the spin evolution, right? Melina, we're we're looking to date them. So of course they have to be single. (laughs) (laughs) My bad, my bad. (laughs) Um, But you also bring up a phenomenal point, uh, which is that we don't always just have a single star in an isolated system that we're trying to determine the rotation rate of, the age of. There are other things that can change the rotation rate, which can then impact our inferred age of that star. So you brought up a very good example. If you have another object in a binary and say one of them is accreting matter, that could even spin up a star, change mm-hmm. its rotation rate. But in this paper, they're interested in looking at massive orbiting planets and the effect that those massive planets would have on the age estimates of its parent star from gyrochronology. Right, that's interesting. I wonder how different that effect is from that of a star, because even if the planet is much less massive, it's also a lot closer to the host star, Mm -hmm. so it might still have a pretty large effect, especially if it's like a hot Jupiter or something, right? So, Melina, 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 you're really jumping into the results here, and we haven't even gone over the methods yet. sorry, I love spin dynamics, it's so cool. (laughs) Okay, so how did the authors do this? They separately modeled the evolution of a star and the orbital evolution of a planet orbiting around this type of star, and they then calculated the tidal effects on each of these bodies over time 
and tied the two simulations together. In their study, they changed the mass of the star, the mass of the planet, their separation, and for each of those systems, they quantified the change in the star's age that you would derive using this gyrochronology method. So they're calibrating it to see how accurate it's going to be? Exactly. In the cases okay. where you have massive planets or just different okay. systems that are having some tidal effect on the star, causing it to spin down. Got it. Okay. And did they find that it was a really substantial effect? I wouldn't say hugely substantial. So the authors found that if a star has a planet with a mass about twice that of Jupiter and an orbital period less than around two or three days, then you would derive a stellar age that is off by 20% from the actual age that you should get if it was in an isolated system. So the tidal effects would cause it to spin down quicker than if it were in isolation and just spinning by wind? Exactly. Okay. Right. Those types of planets aren't that uncommon. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess they're relatively easy to find, but I would think that might actually be kind of an issue, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what your determination of uh, statistical significance is. For a lot of things in astronomy, I would argue that 20% is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and like, hot Jupiters only show up around about half a percent of stars, and some of them are probably smaller than that. So I guess, okay, fair. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. But they, they also found that more massive stars, uh, even further out than that period, could have a similar effect. And if a star is already old and it's spinning really slowly, then the effect would be more pronounced because it's percent change, right? So you'd have a bigger percent change relative to this already slowly spinning star. But I think 20% is still pretty good. So unless you have some major dynamical event like the star fully engulfing that planet or something, then you're probably fine using gyrochronology for, for stellar dating as is. Well, at least you know what your error bars are. Right. <laughs> This might be kind of not that relevant, but <laughs> if you do have a planet actually get engulfed by its star, is that going to have a major effect? <laughs> I mean, would that be a lot more than 20%? It should, yeah. Um, they, they didn't investigate this. They just mentioned it at the very end of the paper, but they suggest that if you have some major cataclysmic event like this, you could completely alter the spin down rate of the star. Now, the question you both might be wondering is, let's say 20% is statistically significant to you. Let's say that matters. You want to do even better, and you know that you have a system with a massive hot Jupiter within a period of two or three days from your host star. What can you do? It turns out these authors proposed a new method of dating stars based on correlations that they found in their simulations. They've dubbed it tidal chronology. Mm. And they've released a publicly sourced code called Tattoo last year. It's on GitHub. And you can input the parameters that you have about the system, including the orbital parameters of the planet, and they'll tell you the age of your host star. Wow, that's cool. That is an excellent resource. Yeah. How does that work? <laughs> <laughs> like, what do, they, what do they adjust to make it actually work? Yeah, so... I think they have, I mean, this is entirely my guess based on uh, the plots that I've seen in their paper, but mm -hmm. I would think that you could adopt a series of correction factors based on the percent deviations that they observed in the systems that they simulated. So maybe right. they interpolated within the space that they have in orbital parameters and then say, well, this percent is what you would be off from gyrochronology. So correct for that factor. And here's your true age. 
Right. So okay. it's sort of like a grid or forward modeling kind of method. Right. Yeah. Right. Cool. That's awesome. And it's awesome that they made it open source. Totally. I thought it was a very cool kind of uh, fully comprehensive study from start yeah. to finish. I really liked it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you to the authors. Thank you to the Astrobyte author. Thank you to Alex. Thanks, thank thanks you, everyone. <laughs> I thought we talked about this. This is no longer going to be the thanks podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just so grateful. Uh. <laughs> and of course, it's everyone's favorite time <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> it's, no, I'm actually super excited for this week. So we're going to go into today's astrospace sound of the ages. It's going to be awesome. I'm super excited for this one. So I'm going to play a sound for you and I want you guys to guess it. What do you think it is? It's intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there were two or three patterns. There's a high frequency pattern I could hear, and then sort of a lower frequency undulation on top of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's tough because I also didn't recognize a huge variation across the duration of the space sound. Yeah. So I think it'd be something pretty continuous. Now, my guess magnetic fields. Tossing it out there. Magnetic fields <laughs> measurements of some body in our solar system. I'm going to go with uh, measurement of the interstellar medium. Interesting. I tend to go really thematic with my space sounds. So it's, <laughs> it's definitely about stars. Okay. But, okay. but no, it's definitely correct that it's something that's pretty constant, um, given that stars are like relatively constant things yeah. over you know human lifespans so this audio is actually a sonification of astroseismic data and it's called in your stars and it's part of this 50 minute cd that includes <laughs> astroseismic data from a lot of different stars oh my gosh so their frequencies are all scaled by a factor of a million to bring the sounds to the range of human hearing and they, they use 15 different stars that are included. This is a work that was put together by Jeff Talman, who's a musician or an artist, and by Dan Huber, who does astroseismology at uh, University of Hawaii. And so they collaborated together to create this really cool 50-minute thing, this 50-minute <laughs> CD that you can buy online if you want. I got to say, it sounded great. I found no fault in their stars. <laughs> 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 Ooh. <laughs> 
<laughs> so many puns this episode. <laughs> that, that is cool, though. I, I mean, it is sort of a relaxing tone. I can imagine, you know, putting that on while meditating or something. Sure. You know, it could work. I don't know that I'm ready for 50 minutes of it, but three or five could do. <laughs> no, hit me with it while I'm, like, in the sauna or something mm. during, like, a real nice spa day. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really cool. And there are sort of different frequencies for different stars. As Will mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this is the most precise way to get stellar ages. So you can forward model these stars with really precise um, astro-seismic data. Usually tends to be from like the TESS or Kepler telescopes. Kepler is, I think, more precise because its pixels are much smaller. And it's like this whole burgeoning field. Astro-seismology is so cool. So astro-seismology is determining the vibrations of a star, right? Almost like a, yeah. like a star quake. Right? Yeah, mm. so stars constantly have these sound waves that are bouncing around in them, and they are produced by convection zones, by tidal interactions with companions. So like we mentioned, heartbeat stars in the last episode. Mm-hmm. And th- so those have really close approaches with their companions that excite these waves. Uh, and then there are also opacity bumps that show up in a lot of variable stars. So it's kind of like a way to probe the interior structure of a star very directly by looking at the ways that the sound waves are bouncing around within them. So in audio, you played the frequencies, the different frequencies that the audio was composed of are actually the, well, not the true frequencies, but correspond to higher and lower frequencies of pulsation within the star. Yeah, and the frequencies that you're going to get are going to depend on the size, I believe, of these convective and radiative layers within the star. And so those are going to dramatically change with the age of the star, actually, Um, and like the type of the star. You can actually learn a huge amount of the interior of stars from astroseismic data because it's pretty much the most direct way that you can actually probe the interior structure. That's how we get the interior structure of Earth as well as from earthquakes. Almost how the size and shape of musical instruments completely changes the sound that comes out of them, right? Yeah, so your boundary layers are going to be set to different sizes depending on the sizes of the layers of like a planet, of your star, the size of your instrument, whatever it is. That's so cool. Dang. Yeah, the musical instrument that is a star. Hmm. Absolutely beautiful. All right, so I am actually still super stoked to hear about this compositional method that Will mentioned at the beginning. So I do want to move into that astrobite. Yeah, it's not really something that I know much about. So super, super interested to hear if you're ready to share, Will. Oh, yeah, let's do it. So this astrobite is called Keeping Time in the Milky Way with Chemical Clocks. It was written by Catherine Manea. And the paper was written by Francisca Espinoza Royas, and it was submitted to the Astrophysical Journal, not yet published. This idea of chemical clocks is this abundance ratios, and certain elements have abundance ratios that can track stellar age. So an abundance ratio simply is how much of this element to how much of that element. And you can do this with a lot of different elements. There are some elements that make more sense to do with stars and some that make a lot less sense, but a lot of the ones are sort of seemingly random unless you understand something about how stars form chemically. The reason that we care about these and the reason these are good chemical clocks is because when stars form, they trap within them all the material they formed with. And most of it is hydrogen, of course, because they have to burn the hydrogen into helium, but There's also some other material in the interstellar medium. The earliest stars to exist lived and died really quick and left behind some heavier elements. 
So the stars have a little bit of heavier elements in them based on when they formed. So then we can measure that and compare that to the current state of the interstellar medium, its current abundance, and say, wow, this was different than what we currently see. Therefore, these stars must have formed X number of years ago. Right. So then the idea would be if they have more metals in them, then they must be younger, right? Because they've had more supernova go off since the beginning of the universe and there are just more metals around. Right, exactly. The heavier stuff is only newer, but you can even do more precise than that using the specific ratios and comparing them. That's interesting. I'm kind of surprised that the elements don't just sink. Maybe I don't really know what the sinking time scale is, but I know like in white dwarfs, you would expect a lot of the elements to sink over pretty short time scales. Maybe like if you have a convective exterior, then it just keeps like cycling around. Bingo. Oh, okay. Yeah, you need convection. <laughs> if if there's no convection, then you're mm -hmm. right, that you do not get these observable line ratios. Yeah. Right. Okay, cool. That makes sense. It's one of the limitations of this method. Are there specific line ratios that they would look for that are more reliable tracers of age than others? Oh, yeah. So that's one of the conclusions is which lines were better than others. They did a ton of lines. And there's a great figure. I think it's, let's see, uh, six by seven. So 42 different lines that they were experimenting with for all of their sample size. So let's get into the methodology a little bit here. Mm -hmm. The idea of this work was more of a proof of concept to see how reliable this method would be for wide binaries. And wide binaries are binary stars, but they're not close in. They're really far apart compared to most binaries. And the reason these are useful is because they're the exact same age, right? The binaries had to form from the same material at the same time. And now you have a great comparison. So we can see how one set of line ratios in one of the pair compares to the other of the pair. And if they're different, that's not going to be very reliable. It's not a robust measure of age. Right. And they had 36 pairs, and they did, as I said, 42 different line ratios that they were exploring. And what they found was that wide binaries are more chemically similar than by random chance. Okay, mm -hmm. that's like a, phew, mm -hmm. it works. <laughs> yeah. um, because if that weren't true, then this whole field would sort of fall apart. Mm -hmm. um, well, it wouldn't fall apart, but it would be a, an uphill battle. The second thing they found is the chemical clock abundances show the wide binaries to actually be even more similar to each other than using other properties of the wide binaries. What other properties did they consider? So I think they're looking at the rotation rate, the uh, luminosity to do the isochrones, and some of those other types of age dating. And they found that this is actually a better way of getting an accurate age than those other methods. Wow. So you mentioned they went through a grid of 42 line ratios. I imagine not all of them were that useful. Were there some that were especially useful or some that are like not useful at all to look at? <laughs> Most of them look pretty correlated. So this plot, you can just look it by eye and they fit them all to a line. So you can see, you know, as the line ratio increased on one star, it also increased on the next. Yeah, there's some deviation, and I'm sure they did complex statistics to get accurate measures on that, but the high-level result is they're all pretty darn good. Yes, there are some that are better than others. What were the main elements that they were looking at? So let's see. The best ones were aluminum to barium, huh. mm. titanium to barium, 
and scandium to barium, which is a bit of an unusual element. Huh. Let's go barium. Unsung here of this research. Yeah, barium <laughs> seems to be one of the more reliable ones. And the astrobite also talked about yttrium as one of the more reliable ones as well. Didn't do quite as good as barium because you wouldn't want a yttrium to barium ratio. You would compare other things to either barium or yttrium because those are newer elements. But yeah, it was a promising result, an early result, right? A proof of concept that this could be done. But this isn't actually dating the stars, right? They didn't use this to know how old they are. They use this to know that it is a reliable method in that mm. it produces the same results for a control set. 42 control sets produce very good, very similar results. So when they can calibrate it and say, all right, now this abundance ratio actually means this age, then you can reliably measure the abundance ratio and say, okay, that one's this old, that one's this old, and so on. But yet we don't have that. So this is a proof of concept, but it's, it's a long ways from being a definite way of measuring age. That's so interesting. And especially since all 42 seem to show this correlation, you could, I mean, assuming you have access to all this information on all these abundances, which you might not be able to get for a huge number of stars, but maybe you could, uh, then you could check all of the lines and you would have a lot of different ways to cross check your results. It wouldn't just be like one mm. thing. It sounds like a really good machine learning project. <laughs> Yeah, it could be. We we need to calibrate the star ages for some of the known ones and then use that to back out a metric that will apply to the unknown ones. Right. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing if you use like principal component analysis or some dimensionality yeah. reduction methods to find like the most significant combinations of all of those different metrics into one major like this is the age. It'd be very cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's also brilliant to use a binary or sets of binary systems to calibrate one star against the other. Yeah. I thought it was very clever, yeah. And you probably need to get pretty high signal-to-noise spectra of these stars to get the ages, I would think. But that's still probably cheaper than many, many years of astro-seismic data. Right. So, right. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. You know, Tess found evidence of, like, the sextuplet system of, yeah. like, six different yeah. stars all orbiting around each other. I wonder if you could find, like, some rare systems like that, and if you could get the data, you would even have a larger statistical sample to be able to calibrate the method against because all of them, the hope would be that they all formed in a, the same environment. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. I would think that all stars in a given stellar cluster should also have pretty similar properties, right? I'm not sure if it would vary enough that it would make this much less precise. Yeah, that's a tough one to say. I feel like it would depend on the initial mass function, which I don't know how well we have that constrained. <laughs> You know, like how many stars would form throughout the lifetime of a, a given cluster. Yeah. Sure. And then that might change like small scale the composition. But Yeah. I think it's less foolproof of a control mm -hmm. set. And it yeah. might be a great first test case, in fact, to see how similar they are once they can calibrate this method properly. Yeah, that would actually be really interesting if calibrating this, you end up finding like some subtle gradient in the clusters yeah. or yeah. something. Yeah. You would be curious. Anyway, it seems like a good place to leave it there. Yeah. That's a really cool bite. Yeah, that that's super interesting. <laughs> I really enjoyed reading it. One of the most well-written ones I've read wow. recently. Kudos to the Astrobite author. Catherine Minea, I think, right? Yep, Catherine Minea. Yeah. Thank you, Catherine. You have blessed us <laughs> with this wonderful Astrobite. <laughs> All right. So that brings us to our one-sentence summaries. Uh, Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. 
For a star, dating gets a whole lot simpler when you aren't a parent to a couple of really massive planets. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Very nice. What about you, Will? Uh, Chemical clocks work in an important test case, binary stars, but it remains to be seen how this will be used to estimate stellar age. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if there are complementary ways that we're able to use multiple age dating mechanisms for a given star. Like, is it just redundant if you try to use multiple methods to characterize a given star, or are you able to get extra information in some way or maybe improve the precision of the age somehow? That's a really good question. My first thought would be that certain methods would be subjected to systematic biases in their derived age estimates. Mm. So for example, if you're relying only on the HR method using photometry, then you could be contaminated by reddening from material in the interstellar medium from dust like Will mentioned at the very beginning of the episode. So that could change your all of your age estimates for all of your stars in a particular direction if you're not accounting for it. And the hope would be that if you're able to combine different estimates, then they all bias in slightly different ways than you derive kind of the median estimate that is more accurate than you would get otherwise. I'm trying to think about what the biases would be for the abundances method. I can definitely see for the isochrons and the gyrochronology, I would think that binaries and triples would really mess up your estimates. Mm-hmm. And those are really, mm-hmm. really common. But it's really clever that the abundances method is something that we might be able to use. And there are probably caveats. There definitely are caveats. What, what are the yeah. caveats? <laughs> One that comes to mind is it assumes that the interstellar medium is uniform. So if in some places it's more enriched with barium than in other places, you're going to get a different ratio. In the Milky Way, we might be okay. You could get away with this. But if you want to start doing this for stars outside the Milky Way, it probably is going to be next to impossible. You also have to assume a certain enrichment rate, right? If the composition is slightly different than the surrounding ISM, then you have to assume the period of time over which it went from being how it was when the star formed to how it looks now. That's a great point as well. Yeah, so we have to know the ISM really well. Do we not? Is the ISM something we (laughs) do know to... I mean, I don't know. It seems fairly well studied. So just from like a couple of conversations that I've had on the chemistry of the ISM, I think it's very, very tough to model Mm. because it's multi-phase. There are atomic regions. There are molecular regions you have to take into account ionization from local objects that might break apart molecules and all this changes the chemistry in ways that is really really hard to simulate so yeah i think like you said well we just assume that it's homogenous and that all of the stuff gets washed out on large scales but for individual stars it might really matter right agreed both voyager spacecraft entered the interstellar medium in the last 10 years and the initial results were groundbreaking I mean, nobody knew how to understand what we were reading from these plasma measurements. So those papers were really pivotal and have inspired a lot of new modeling efforts about what the ISM does. One little detail, I mentioned that getting accurate stellar photometry requires knowing what the interstellar reddening is. And that is almost certainly poorly known for every case. And so that's just one example of how little we know about the ISM because of how much it affects other measurements and we're not really able to calibrate it out. Right. And you might actually be able to learn about it by taking multiple methods of determining ages and comparing them and then figuring out what the systematics are that you already are aware of and then what would need to be accounted for by reddening or something else, right? 
It's an interesting idea. There might be caveats to that where, I don't know, I'm not sure if the problem is just that it's really expensive or if these methods maybe don't work for certain types of stars. Yeah, I I really don't know enough about astroseismology to know anything about the biases associated with those measurements. But after this episode, maybe I'll look some up. Y'all have reinvigorated my interest in astroseismology. I think it's such a cool field. And mm-hmm. uh, I had no idea that it's one of the most accurate methods of dating stars, so... I think that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I guess for that method, you're looking at photometry. So the larger the oscillations are, the easier it is to see. So I guess what that would mean is probably nearby stars are relatively easy and stars with really large oscillations are relatively easy. But for the ones that have maybe smaller oscillations, I'm sure there are certain types of stars that are relatively challenging, but I'm not exactly sure like what part of parameter space that is. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that is true. Asteroseismology is a really tough field. And I think a lot of the new work is about white dwarf binaries. And that's sort of a cutting edge part of that work is applying what's known for stars to white dwarfs, which are even harder to observe. All of these methods have been talking about stars in the galaxy, right? So in the Milky Correct. Way. So we're probably mm-hmm. pretty biased towards mostly the solar neighborhood, right? That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Actually, one of the big questions in supernova studies is whether the dust laws in other galaxies are anything like the dust laws in our own galaxy. I'm sure that has huge implications for stellar dating. Yeah, that's a tough one because you would really think it could be certainly different depending on the galaxy type and age and evolution and merger history and all these sorts of things. Right. 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 Well, I think we'll wrap up there. So that concludes episode 37 of Astro Soundbites. How to Date a Star. If you want to read the two astrobytes we talked about today, ponder over the associated papers, or enjoy <laughs> some soothing space sounds on your daily walk, <laughs> check out the links in the show notes. And if you'd like to hear more from us, check out all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. <laughs>